Thank you, Susan, very much. And well done with the lectern that came up to your nose. That was great. <laughs> I personally think it's perfect, but uh, let's uh, bow our heads and pray once again, everybody. We need the Lord's help every hour. Our Father, as we come to the second look into your very wonderful word, we pray that you would help us so that we would appreciate it in proportion to your worthiness and our need. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite stories at weddings, especially difficult weddings, is the story of the young man who goes down to the coffee bar on his honeymoon, and the lady behind the coffee bar says to him, seeing the bright, shiny wedding ring, uh, you must be on your honeymoon, and he says, yes, I am. And she says, a funny thing, you know, when I was on my honeymoon, I was reading a tale of two cities, and within the year, we had twins. And a guy a little further down the coffee bar says, you know, that's funny, my wife was reading The Three Musketeers, and within the year, we had triplets. And the young guy gets very pale and says, I've got to get back to my room. My wife's reeling Alec Barber and the 40 Thieves. <laughs> so <clears throat> I tell you that because we're coming to the second talk in Deuteronomy, which is called, in your outline, Seven Diamonds on the Covenant Ring. So you might like to open the outline and see where we're going. I want to recap for you in case you missed this morning. We're following the book of Deuteronomy in four parts. Uh, we have seen Moses begin chapters one to four by recapping the journey, basically just describing where they have come from. And so chapters one to four is the story so far, getting to the edge of the promised land. Now chapter five to 11, chapters five to 11, which is what we come to now, is God describing the relationship that he has with his people. Dear friends, if ever you want to do an exercise in thinking through what the relationship between God and yourself is, read carefully Deuteronomy five to 11, because those seven chapters are like seven diamonds on the covenant ring. What we'll see tomorrow morning is practical living from some of the commandments, and then we'll finish with the basic call to follow at the last chapters. Now, this 5 to 11 is hard to take in in one talk. Uh, it would make a great series of sermons, a great series of seven. And I hasten to say, in case you think as you read, every chapter is saying the same, they're not. Every chapter is saying something slightly different. And so all we can do in this short time is have a glance at the relationship. Now, if you fall asleep and you hear nothing from now, just know that 5 to 11 is discussing the relationship that God has with his people in seven different aspects. And I want to preface this by saying to you, what would it be like, and some of you will know this experience, to adopt a child and then get to the point of explaining the relationship that you have with the child? Of course, you would want the child to know that you had specially chosen them and that you specially love them. And because deep in the child, especially a child of seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, may be thinking, how long will this last? How safe am I? You would want to be establishing, wouldn't you, with the child that they have your surname now and they are yours forever. 
And then the child thinks, well, that's probably not going to work because if I fail, maybe I'll be moved on to another home. And so you're saying to the child, we are committed to you, full stop. We love you, full stop. And the child thinks, yeah, but that's not going to really work if I do something dreadful. I'll be moved out of here. And somehow you're trying to build into the child a proper sense of security. And you may need to say something like this. Of course, if when you grow up, you decide to have nothing more to do with us, that's your decision. But we are always going to love you. We're always going to be committed to you. And your disobedience or your obedience is not going to be the test of your security. Your security is because we're committed to you. And the child may think to themselves, yeah, but what if I burn the house down? And the parent may say, if you burn the house down, we're committed to you, we love you. If you burn the house down deliberately, our love may look like this, dot, 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 but we're committed to you. Building into the adopted child a sense of belonging, security, and safety is one of the great needs for children. And what God is doing in the book of Deuteronomy is building into his people a great sense of blessing, privilege, and security so that they will respond with security, not nervousness or anxiety, but not being idiots and walking away and knowing that if they do disobey, he will still love them, but may discipline them. I'm kind of laboring this because I want you to get the picture of what's happening here. We mustn't imagine in the scriptures that obedience is the secret of security. Obedience is a response. Disobedience may be the response, but obedience and disobedience are not the secrets of security. We'll think a bit more about that as we go. So let's look at the outline, and I've called this first chapter five, Rescued to Respond. In chapter five, verse three, Moses says, and I'll just read it to you from my strange translation, and your NIV may correspond somewhat. It says, the Lord didn't make this covenant with our fathers, but with us. And at that point, you may think to yourself, well, that doesn't sound right. The Lord did make the covenant with our fathers, but what Moses means is the Lord didn't make the covenant just with our fathers. He made it with his people across the generations. So the covenant is for God's people, beginning at Sinai, on through the wilderness and on into the promised land. And it's a covenant, verse 6, of grace. You see that in verse 6? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, I saved you. What comes in verse 7? The first of the commandments, which we've been reminded of. In other words, let me say this three times as carefully as I can. In the Bible, it's rescue leading to response. It's salvation leading to service. It's liberty leading to law-keeping. This is a revolutionary concept of the world, for the world because the world that we live in thinks trophy. Trophy at work, trophy at school, trophy at university. The way the world thinks is ladder up. I must climb the ladder and win the trophy. The Bible says, no, it's ladder down or helicopter down. This is grace to you. 
very important for us to get this. In the religious world, it's ladder up. So much of the religions of the world are ladder up. Follow these five things, follow these eight things, follow these, follow these, and maybe you'll arrive at the top. And the Bible says, no, it's grace down. So grace, as John Stott beautifully says, is the cause of our salvation and works are the consequence. I find that a tremendously helpful sentence. Grace is the cause of our salvation, works are the consequence. And there are some people in church who never get that. They never get it because they continue to think works must be the cause. And the Bible says grace is the cause, works are the, con are the consequence. Then come the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5 are mostly, as we've heard, a restatement of Exodus 20. But you'll notice that the Sabbath in verse 15 now looks back to, to, what does it look back to? It looks back to the Exodus. It doesn't look back to creation, it now looks back to the Exodus, because the emphasis here in the retelling of the commandments is you're a saved people. You're a people who've been delivered. Well, you'll notice in the verse 27 at the end of the chapter that the people at Sinai were talking great. When they were at Sinai and they heard the voice and they heard the law, they said, we really, we're going to do this. This is great. But verse 29, God said, if only they had a heart to do it. But they don't. And so the people of God, we know from this section of the Old Testament, are going to need new hearts. How are we going to get new hearts? It isn't going to be through law. It isn't going to be through religion. It isn't going to be through ritual. It isn't going to be through church going. It isn't going to be through the methods of grace. It's going to be something that God will have to do himself. God will arrange it. And this change of heart was promised in the Old Testament by the prophets. Jeremiah talked about a change of heart and Ezekiel talked about taking out the heart of stone and putting in the heart of flesh. So even at Mount Sinai, and the people were responding pretty well and saying, yeah, this is great, we're going to do this. And God said, unfortunately, you're not. You need a change of heart. But I'm going to bring you a change of heart. And when, of course, we get to the New Testament, there is the Lord Jesus paying for the sins of the people who've disobeyed, bringing an end to the wall of hostility so that we're able to be in fellowship with him, and putting within his people his Holy Spirit, enabling us to have some attempt at keeping his word. So that's our privilege, isn't it? The work of Christ on the cross, the finished work of Christ on the cross, paying for the damage we've done, and the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, helping us to be somewhat obedient, not to earn our security, but as a response to our security. That's how the um, picture of this all fills out. So we're new people, we're not perfect people. We've got a new love for God, not a perfect love. We've got a new love for His Word, not a perfect love. We've got a new interest in prayer, not a perfect interest. We've got a new fellowship, not a perfect fellowship. Deuteronomy chapter 5, rescued, says God, in order to respond. Okay, that's the first chapter. Chapter 6, I've called welfare and danger. And in chapter 6, we come in verse 4 to the famous Shema. This is the Hebrew word for listen or hear. And the chapter 6 verse 4 famously says, Yahweh is one. 
Now, friends, if you were going to sit down with a little group of children, let's imagine they're all five and six, and you were to teach them that Yahweh God is one, what do you think that means? And the answer is it means a whole lot of wonderful things. Uh, First of all, there's a trinity aspect here, isn't there? Because the Bible tells us from the very beginning there's only one God. And when somebody says to you, well, how come you believe in three? You say, well, we don't believe in three gods, we believe in one God. But if you read your Bible from left to right, there'll come a time where you come face to face with Jesus and you've got to work out as you should. He is God. And then as you keep reading from left to right, you're going to come to the Holy Spirit and you're going to see that He is God. And so holding on with your left hand to one God, you're going to realize there are three persons. And it's impossible to come to any other sensible conclusion. And so don't fall into the trap of thinking the Trinity is illogical. There is one God, but as you read your Bible from left to right, you'll see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons. And all of this is, of course, part of this lovely sentence, there is one God. The other thing, of course, is that there is one God means that other gods are not real. And if you don't mind me saying so, based on 1 Kings 19, you remember where Yahweh was being called to by Elijah and Baal was being called to by the prophets? Do you remember what happened? The prophets of Baal called and it says there was nothing, there was nothing, there was nothing. Because there was nobody up there called Baal. They might as well have called to a tree or a teapot. You know, Baal is not up there. Idols do not really exist. Idolatry is dangerous, but idols don't really exist. Allah is not really there. This is an invention. It's Yahweh who is there. And therefore, we love people by pointing them to the God who is real. There's nothing unloving about urging people to the God who's real. And then, of course, this uh, sentence in chapter 6, verse 4, also means we only need one God. You don't have to hedge your bets. When you get into the promised land, you don't have to think, well, Yahweh's good at rescue from Egypt, but Baal is good at harvest and agriculture. No, no, no. Yahweh runs everything. Do you need power? Yahweh. Do you need intimacy? Yahweh. Do you need patience? Yahweh. Do you need mercy? Yahweh. Do you need family issues? Yahweh. Do you need work issues? Yahweh. Do you need farming issues? Yahweh. One God. Don't need to hedge your bets. And therefore, give him your heart and you will be an integrated person. When you say to the Lord, I want to be devoted to you, and sometimes the Lord helps us to want to do that, doesn't he? And it's like we are integrated. Uh, to use that corny illustration, but still helpful. It's as if we say to the Lord, uh, come in and occupy every room and every cupboard and every drawer. It's all yours. And there is an integrity about that. Whereas when we divide ourselves, we are disintegrated. And so all of this is built into this magnificent sentence in chapter 6, verse 4. And um, Moses says, teach this to young people. Teach them the wonder of the one God. Three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And can I say as an aside, you cannot have one or two members of the Trinity and not the others. 
<laughs> so you can't have God really, and then one day later get Jesus, and then one day later get the Holy Spirit. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you have a Father in heaven, a Savior, and a Holy Spirit living in you. You get the Trinity together. Well, in chapter 6, verse 10, Moses says, this is your welfare, but there will be dangers when you get into the promised land. In other words, you might think, yeah, this is great. We like this but there will be dangers. I was preaching in Canada last week on the uh, calming of the storm. Uh, my brother-in-law very kindly gave me the calming of the storm, the exorcism of legion, the healing of the sick woman, and the raising of Jairus's daughter for one sermon. <laughs> 50 verses, it's like a punishment. And um, I was noticing in the account in Mark 6 that they had been learning all day about the kingdom, the seed of the kingdom, the invincibility of the kingdom, the growth of the kingdom, the invisible growth of the kingdom, the expansive growth of the kingdom. And you could imagine the disciples like you and me here this morning saying, yeah, 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 tell us something we don't know. And Jesus says, let's cross a lake. And there is no doubt that he raises up a storm, which he then calms to show them that the theory needs to be practice and that all the talk of the kingdom needs to be anchored into their hearts. And Moses is saying very much the same. You may be uh, an orthodox person, says Moses. You may believe that Yahweh is one, but when you get into the promised land, there will be pressure. And he mentions one of them in verses 10 to 12, and that is the pressure to forget God when all is well. I worked in North Sydney for the 30 years, and I would say one of the biggest dangers for the families in the church was the men or the women who got promotions. And suddenly they would go off and be earning megabucks and they just never quite were the same. And therefore, when things are all well, there is a danger, isn't there? And God, you see, who loves us, is wise enough to occasionally rock our boat. C.S. Lewis used to say, and when God knocks on the door of the average person in this world, the average person in the world says, no, not interested. And so C.S. Lewis says, what will God do? Well, he won't go because people are not listening to that. And he won't walk away because he's committed to you. What will he do? Well, C.S. Lewis says he'll take out the back wall or collapse the central staircase. Not because he doesn't love you, but because he does love you and you're not listening to... So we often want to say to people, don't we, come the easy way before he brings you the hard way. And Moses is saying, when you get into the promised land, it's possible that when things are well and you see the plenty and the riches and the wonders of the land, that you'll say, oh, we don't need Yahweh anymore. The other problem in verses 14 to 15 is that you'll change gods. And as we talked earlier this morning, the possibility of, of rethinking God or of having something or someone which is a greater priority than God himself. And then the third priority, uh, the third danger in verse 16 is that you'll give up because of trouble. And that's a real danger as well. 
You may have noticed in the church that some people, when great suffering comes, it brings them closer to God, and for other people it really takes them away. And so Moses is giving this very gifted exhortation to the believers on the edge of the promised land. Remember that God is one, and when you get into the promised land, one, don't forget him, because it'll be great. Two, don't change for another God. There isn't really another God. Thirdly, don't give up if things get difficult. So obedience is on the backdrop of salvation and uh, helping children know their security uh, and helping the Israelites know their security was part of Moses' wisdom. Okay, does any of that make sense? I'll give you one more quick illustration for free. You know what it's like when you're taking your children on holidays and uh, you've got three little kids. Uh, You do not give them the steering wheel, do you? That's your job. Uh, You want them to be secure, so you take the steering wheel, otherwise you're not going to go very far, and you put them into the back seat and you put on their little seat belts and their little chairs. They are not contributing to the security of the journey that's given to them. Can they contribute to the joy of the journey? No, they can't. Yes, they can. Yes, yes, they can, and it will never happen. Can they contribute to the joy of the journey? In theory, they could, couldn't they? They could be great for the trip. No, it's never happened, but it could be great, couldn't it? They, could be, they can contribute to the joy of the journey. So our obedience doesn't contribute to our security, but it does bring glory to God, and it does bring joy to us. So think about that when you think that obedience is a rotten path. It's actually a path that glorifies God and it brings joy to us. And I need to hear that as much as you do. Okay, chapter 7. This is what I've called loved, so decide. And these are some of the most beautiful verses in Deuteronomy. Uh, In fact, I will read the famous verses of 7, 7 to 8. Because you will know these and if you don't, you must treasure them. Chapter 7, 7. Remember 7, 7 of Deuteronomy? The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. (laughs) Did you see the logic? The Lord decided to love you for this reason, because he decided to love you. That's the beauty. Loved We're told in verse 1, the Lord is going to drive out seven nations. That's great. Probably seven nations, meaning perfectly drive out the nations. And then in verse 2 to 6, the bad news is make no treaty. Smash down everything. Smash everything that reeks of idolatry. Smash it, smash it, smash it. And we look at those verses and think, well, this is pretty ruthless. But actually, we know that removing a cancer from the body we're not going to do half measures. Removing drugs from the house, we're not going to do half measures. Removing a weirdo from a playground, we're not going to do half measures. And God says, make sure that you remove all traces of idolatry because, verses 7 and 8, I chose you and I chose you because I loved you. So just as the sunshine today is coming down on us, not because of us, we are not magnetizing the sunshine down. It's just coming down. The love of God comes on his people. We don't drag it down. It's because of him that it comes onto us. 
And therefore, verse 11, respond well. That's what Moses says. Respond well because you're greatly loved. And if you respond well, verse 13, God will bless you. And he lists a whole lot of blessings. Now, friends, do you know that the Old Testament blessings were mostly outward and temporary? You may read the Old Testament blessings and think, gee, wouldn't it be great if we were just all healthy and all wealthy and had everything? But the Old Testament blessings, which were outward, were also temporary. Whereas the New Testament blessings are inward, spiritual and eternal. Much, much better to have all the blessings of Christ than to have all the temporary blessings of the Old Testament. And we read in chapter 7, verse 17, that God who defeated Egypt will help you. Well, isn't that encouraging? The people must be saying to themselves, is this really going to work? And God says, well, I brought you out of Egypt. So I'm pretty sure I can bring you into the promised land. Okay, that's what we've seen so far. Rescued to respond. You've been saved. There's the commandments. Welfare and danger. There's one God. Watch the dangers. And you're loved, so decide to respond well. Uh, that's the first three. Now, the fourth one, is anybody still with me? Yes. Both of you are with me? <laughs> Great. Chapter 8 is called Trained for Wisdom, and this is the passage which Susan read for us. And you read in chapter 8, verse 2, that God had led them through the wilderness and in the leading through the wilderness had tested them to reveal their heart. Now, I don't know if you ever wrestle with Scripture, but I read verse 3, and I read that God fed them with manna to teach them that they don't live by bread alone. And I ask myself the question, how does getting manna every day teach you that you don't live by bread alone? I would have thought the manna coming down teaches you that you do live by bread alone. But you see, the reason that Moses says this is because they could not work for their bread at all. They could not achieve anything it was sheer promise of God that he would look after them. And therefore, they were learning every day, we depend on God, we, we depend on his word. We've got no hope in the wilderness unless the manna comes down freely by grace. And so we're going to learn that God keeps his promises and that he's faithful and generous. This testing in the wilderness revealed the hearts of God's people. And you may be interested to know that when God tests people, because the devil also tests people, same word, especially in the Greek, God tests people to strengthen the friendship. The devil tests people to stretch the friendship. God tests people to strengthen the friendship. He will put you and me in deep water because he wants to strengthen the friendship. I said to the pastors in Canada who are all going back to quite difficult situations, you know, we've all been on the Mount of Transfiguration and get ready because we're all going back to the boy with the foaming mouth. Some of you will know what I mean by that. In other words, we're going back to big challenges, but remember the Lord is with us. I got off the plane and I just met major challenges. The tiny little church where I'm working of 40 people, major problems, family, all sorts of things. And God, you see, lovingly tests to strengthen the friendship. The devil tests to stretch the friendship. And then there is this uh, amazing promise, isn't there, in chapter 8, verse 4, that the Lord led the people through the wilderness without any of their sandals wearing out 
and their feet didn't swell. What an amazing thing. I mean, there must have been a million of them walking through the wilderness. And the sovereign God made sure that the soles of the sandals didn't wear out for 40 years. I mean, how do you do that? The sovereign genius of God looking after his people. And so he says in chapter 8, verse 6, therefore be wise. The promised land is going to test you and you're going to think, verse 17, hey, we did this. And the Lord says, chapter 8, verse 18, no, I want you to remember that every single thing you can do, I gave you the ability to do. Are you good at making money? The Lord gave you the ability. Are you good at singing? The Lord gave you the ability. Are you good at dot, dot, dot? The Lord gave you the ability. So therefore, You've been trained, says the Lord, through the wilderness. Be wise, be wise. By definition, a trial is usually fairly deep water. A trial is not usually shallow water. Putting me into shallow water is not going to strengthen my spiritual muscles. It's putting me into deep water, which will strengthen my spiritual muscles. And that's what the Lord has done. Chapter 5 is called Success and Humility. In chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, um, we're told that God is going to enable them to enter the promised land. And again, God says, please don't think that you deserve all this. It's my grace that is going to give you the promised land. So in chapter 8, the people said, oh, we're going into the promised land and we are so clever. And in chapter 9, the people said, oh, we're going to the promised land and we're so good. No wonder we're getting the promised land. Problem chapter 8, I'm skillful. Problem chapter 9, I deserve this. No, 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 says God. I give you the skill. I give you the land. So this is a call to humility because the people are going to be incredibly blessed and the danger will be to say, we did this. Uh, The Lord has blessed your church. He's given you pastors and people over many years. But if ever you trace it and it doesn't go back to God, you've probably made a mistake. And it will be dishonoring to him not to say, he gave us, he gave us, he gave us. And so there needs to be a godly humility and not a sort of a human boastfulness. Uh, Tim Keller says that people today fear humility, you know, as if humility is terrible. In the past, he said, people were afraid of pride. That's obviously much more dangerous. C.S. Lewis says pride is the central vice. It is the one that really dictates all the other vices. It's the sin that fractures friendship. Many evils, says C.S. Lewis, like drink and immorality can bring people together. When I say drink, I mean overdrink. But pride fractures. And a whole lot of fractures in fellowship will have to do with, with pride. So in chapter 9, verse 7, what does Moses say? I want to um, remind you that you're not as great as you think. And he tells them the story of the golden calf. Now, do you remember the account of the golden calf? I shouldn't say story because it's not fiction. Do you remember the event of the golden calf? Do you remember that Moses had been up getting the Ten Commandments? And while he's up getting the Ten Commandments, and they're on the very honeymoon of their relationship with God, and down the bottom of the mountain, what do they say? We want to domesticate, or we want a little figure of God who will basically be our God representative. And they invent or make the golden calf. And you may remember that um, 
Moses at the top of the mountain. He's told by God the people have gone crazy and he goes down the mountain and he sees what they've done and he's so filled with righteous anger. He basically grinds the bull, the the golden calf to dust, makes them drink it because he can see this dreadful idolatry in the light of God's glory. And Moses says to the people of Israel, I want to remind you on the edge of the promised land that your parents, as the whole thing was beginning, went to the golden calf. I once met a lady whose husband committed adultery on their honeymoon. I always thought that was a particularly dreadful thing. But the people of God, you see, in Exodus 32, 33, 34, committed adultery on the honeymoon. And Moses is saying, you're not a gold medal people. You're a gold calf people. Know this about your heart. You go easily to the gold calf. And therefore, you see this uh, chapter 9 is basically saying, God has given you success, but you need to be humble. Now, we're nearly at the finish, everybody. We're just going to do the last two very quickly. Chapter 10, I've called mercy and fear. And we discover in chapter 10 that God, in his mercy, told Moses, let's begin again, get two stone tablets, and put, we'll put the law back on the stone tablets, and we'll start again. In other words, Moses recognized that having sinned against God, God was dangerous, And God is our greatest danger. The wrath of God is more serious than anything. But God is also our solution. God is the solution to his danger. And Moses discovered that God was merciful and gracious. You remember that lovely bit where he basically said to God, show me your glory, and the Lord displayed his glory. The Lord, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And Moses made haste to bow his head toward the earth and he worshipped because he realized that the danger found its solution in God himself. So God arranges freshly, mercifully, new stone tablets. Now here's a question for you. Why are there two stone tablets? Andrew mentioned before that we don't have the Ten Commandments often on our buildings, but why are there two stone tablets? And before you dive in, let me tell you, it's got nothing to do with one to five on one and six to ten on the other. Because when you formed a treaty, both parties got a copy of the treaty. And so um, one group would take the copy back to their place and one group would take the copy back to their place and that was their agreement. And so there's the two stone tablets because God and his people are going to, so to speak, have a copy. But God will put his copy in his tent and the people will put their copy in his tent. That's why there are two. Why are the commandments often negative? You know, people get angry, don't they, about thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And the answer is because that's the key to freedom. You may not realize this, but when you go to the local park with your kids or your grandchildren, if the park tells you what to do, you know you're in a communist country. You know, you shall walk 100 paces. You shall sit for 30 minutes. You shall play two rounds of cricket. You shall eat one sandwich. You know you're in trouble, don't you? But when it says, don't set fire to the trees and don't take the chairs home, you're really liberated because you're just being told what not to do. The rest you can do. And so the the commandments, you see, are liberating because they're just telling you the traps. They're not telling you everything to do. 
So, in the face of God's mercy, chapter 10, he says, fear the Lord. I think this is chapter 10, verse 12. Fear the Lord, walk with Him, obey Him, and love Him. And the reason that you should do this is because He's massive. He's massive. The highest heavens, 1014, belong to Him. I once heard Tim Keller tell a story, and you may find this helpful. He said that uh, as a young man, he had small views of Jesus. And he said he went on a camp, and the person who was giving the talks at the camp said to the young people, I want you to imagine that you've got to make a model of the galaxy in which you live. And the scale of the galaxy, the model, is going to be the distance from the earth to the sun is going to be the thickness of a piece of paper. Okay, so earth to sun, thickness of a piece of paper. And the speaker said, I want you to make a model of the galaxy, and I want to know how big a box do you need for the model of the galaxy on that scale? And the answer, said the speaker, is you need a box 700 kilometers by 700 kilometers by 500 kilometers to do a model of the galaxy in which we live. And then the speaker said, and since the king of kings has made and owns billions of galaxies, we do not get to put him in our back pocket. It's quite a powerful illustration, isn't it? Just a reminder of the greatness of Christ. And Moses says in chapter 10, verse 14, the highest heavens belong to God. But he also says in verse 18, he's interested in the fatherless and the widow. He actually can see into the home of the person who's in great distress and grief. He's interested in supply, support, encouragement, sufficiency. So, churches often go in two directions which are dangerous. One is a transcendent view of God with no imminence. And the other is an imminent view of God with no transcendence. And Deuteronomy 10 holds the two beautifully together. He is massive, he's merciful. He's great, he's gracious. And that's what the people needed to hear, mercy and fear. Um, in the questions which you've been given as a response to this particular talk, there's a little question at the beginning about background music. And I just want to tell you that I used to meet with men for lunch in the ministry, and I would often ask the men, is the love of Christ the background tune to your life? In other words, do you live with the love of Christ as the background tune? Or is it a tune that you can recall if you think really hard about it? Or is it a tune you know nothing about? It was always very interesting to meet with men. Some of them would say, oh, the love of Christ is the background tune of my life. I know that, I know he loves me. Others would say, I've heard about it, and I, you know, if I think about it, I can articulate it. And others would say, it means nothing to me at all. And Moses is teaching the people, just as the Bible is teaching us, that the love of Christ is the background music of the Christian life. And feeling it, experiencing it, Knowing it is one of the great privileges of the Christian life, something to pray for and something to pray for people to get, and something Moses is teaching here. Finally, chapter 11, what I've called grace and obedience. Chapter 11, verse 1, Moses says, help your children grasp who God is, chapter 11, verse 1, because they weren't there at Sinai. You were, you saw the Exodus, you saw the mountain, you saw the crossing of the Red Sea, but they did not, so help them. 
And then he says in chapter 11, verse 10, the land you're going into is going to be very great and you won't have to irrigate by foot. Irrigation is going to come from the heavens. This is an interesting thing. What does it mean when he says you won't have to irrigate by foot? He could mean you don't have to walk for your water or he could mean you don't have to do what they did in Egypt, which is to use sort of boards and paddles to irrigate um, farmland. But either way, what he's saying is it's not going to be you supplying all your needs, it's going to be God supplying all your needs. He's going to look after you. So he says again, verse 22 of chapter 11, therefore be, be faithful, choose your road carefully. When you get into the promised land, you're going to see two mountains, one's called Gerizim, one's called Ebal, and I want you to call out the blessings on Mount Gerizim, and I want you to call out the curses on Mount Ebal, which will be a reminder to you as you walk into the promised land that you've got a decision to make, who will I follow, who will I trust? So where does our safety come from as Christian people today? It comes from the one who bore the curse for us at the cross. And because he bore the, the curses for us, Galatians 3, he has transferred to us, whether we feel it or not, the blessings of forgiveness and fellowship and a future. That's how, we, that's how we experience our safety. Where does our faithfulness come from? It comes from reminding ourselves again and again of the cross. That's where our security lies. And it also comes from asking the help of the Holy Spirit to fill and rule our hearts. So one of the lovely uh, collects of the Anglican Church is, oh God, for as much as without you it's not possible to please you, mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts. Or there's a little chorus which um, some of you who are over a hundred may remember, and it says, cleanse me from my sin, Lord, put your power within, Lord, take me as I am, Lord, make me all your own, keep me day by day, Lord, underneath your sway, Lord, make my heart your palace and your royal throne. And that's what we're saying in response to his greatness and his goodness. So the covenant, you see, unfolds in the Bible. God makes a covenant with his world. He then makes a covenant with Adam and Eve, and then he makes a covenant with Noah, and then he makes a, a, a covenant with Abraham, and then he makes a covenant with Israel, then he makes a covenant with David, and then there's going to be a new covenant, Jeremiah, and then Jesus comes and says, and it's sealed in blood the unfolding covenant of God. So I don't know if any of that got in, it was too much, but let me just say, there's seven chapters looking at God, great and gracious, and we trust obey. That's what this chapter is about. I thought on the subject of rain, I would read to you something which you may have heard before to close from John Piper on the subject of rain. Have any of you seen this before? Give a little wave if you've seen this, John Piper, on the subject of rain. This is what he says. The Bible says that God does great and unsearchable things. He sends rain. When I read these verses, I thought to myself, why is this so great? Is rain a great and unsearchable wonder? Well, picture yourself as a farmer in the Near East, far from any lake or stream. You've got a few wells to keep the family and the animals supplied, but if the crops are to grow and the family's to be fed, water has to come from somewhere. From where? Well, it's gonna come from the sky. The sky? Yes, water will come out of, the, out of the clear blue sky. Well, not exactly. 
Water will have to be carried in the sky from the Mediterranean Sea over several hundred miles and then be poured out from the sky onto fields. Carried, how much does it weigh? Well, if one inch of rain falls on one square mile of farmland during the night, that would be 27 million, nearly 28 million cubic feet of water, which is about 206 million gallons, which is nearly 2 billion pounds of water. So how does it get up in the sky and stay up if it's so heavy? Well, it gets up by evaporation. What does that mean? It means the water stops being water for a while, so it can go up, not down. How does it get down? Well, condensation happens. The water starts becoming water again by gathering around little dust particles between 0.0001 and 0.001 centimetres wide. What about the salt? Salt, yes, the Mediterranean Sea is salt water. That would kill the crops. What about the salt? Well, the salt has to be taken out. So the sky picks up a billion pounds of water from the sea, takes out the salt, then carries it for 300 miles and dumps it on the farm. Well, it doesn't dump it. If it dumped a billion pounds of water, on, of water on the farm, the wheat would be crushed. So the sky dribbles the billion pound water down in little drops. They have to be big enough to fall without evaporating and small enough to keep from crushing the wheat stalks. How do these microscopic specks of water that weigh a billion pounds get heavy enough to fall? It's called coalescence. What is that? It means the specks of water stop bumping into each other and they join up and get bigger. And when they're big enough, they fall. Just like that? Well, not exactly, because they would bounce off each other and instead of joining up, if there were no electrical field present, what? Never mind, take my word for it. <laughs> so I think I will take the, God's word for it. I still don't see why drops ever get to the ground, because if they start falling as soon as they're heavier than air, they'd be too small not to evaporate on the way down. But if they wait to come down, what holds them up till they're big enough not to evaporate? I'm sure there's a name for that as well. But I'm satisfied now that by any name, this is a great and unsearchable thing God has done, and I think I should be more thankful than I am. <laughs> Let's um, thank him together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize from your word that you are much greater than we think you are and more gracious than we think you are. And so we pray you will continue to teach us of your greatness and your grace to your glory and to our good. We especially thank you for the Savior who enables us to know your greatness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.